Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior Tomorrownauts. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. This is the second episode in our 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. Before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, Hasten, did you have any thoughts on what we covered in episode one? Any memories, any particular things that you love about that World's Fair scene? I think the one thing that I love about that World's Fair scene that I just found out a few months ago, I think somebody shared it on Twitter or in our World's Fair Facebook group is that the $50 invention contest was a real thing. Huh. It actually happened at the fair. I did not know that. They wanted young kids to come out with their little small crazy uh, inventions for $50. So was it actually $50 exactly? It was actually $50. Yeah. So someone did their research. That can't be a coincidence. The one other thing that I wanted to say as a bit of a correction or something to keep in mind about the first episode. I said it before, but I'll say it again. I am not a musician. I'm not a musical expert. I'm no David W. Collins. This is not the soundtrack show. And as I was going through for our theme tracker, trying to uh, tally up the themes for this segment that we're covering today, I realized that Athena's theme and the Tomorrowland theme are so often paired together in the movie and riffed on and i don't know that at times if i'm mixing them up or not or if i'm confusing a portion of athena's theme for the tomorrowland theme and so as we go forward i'm going to do the best i can with this count but i'd like to open up the invitation if anyone's listening who is a musician who is more musical than either of us if you'd like to come on the show and clear the air and really help us identify what the exact notes of each of those themes are so that we can be a lot more accurate in our analysis we'd love to have you on or maybe we get jake you know himself on the podcast in the future that's actually a great idea. Let's let's rephrase that. Michael Giacchino, you are being invited onto the show to correct my terrible assumptions about your score, which we love. And so we're doing it out of love. And it's an honest mistake. But you know you're listening, sir. And you know that you want to come on and say, that's not Athena's theme, you simple man. Uh, so please do come on and uh, do look forward to that interview in the next five to 10 years. But for today... We are going to be covering the next roughly 15 minutes of the movie uh, between the 15 minute and 42 second mark and the 30 minute and 54 second mark. And that'll bring us through that introduction where George Clooney is talking to the screen. And today that camera is going to pan right towards Casey. We are going to see her for the first time and she is going to claim to be far more worthy of telling this story than Frank is. Why? Because she's an optimist. She just comes out and says it. And, you know, first time we saw that, Haston, as players of the optimist, it was pretty nice to have that included in the actual text of the movie in the mouth of a character. She said, I'm, I'm an optimist. And, you know, we were just, I remember just being like grinning from ear to ear ready for this adventure and what it had brought and, you know, reflecting on the last, at that point in time, 18 months of what had gone on and what had gone on in my life. And yeah, I'm really glad that line got included just from a, just from a personal perspective and from an overall, like, oh, they built this experience and now it's sort of summed up in the actual film with this one line. And having these two characters that share the movie together, they're both the protagonists. It's a, it's a two-hander story, as I will continue to say, because structurally, that's exactly what it is. And I, I'm continually surprised at how neatly this opening sequence, which you know has its detractors, and certainly we've been critical of certain aspects of it, but it gives 15 minutes of fame to Frank and 15 minutes of fame to Casey. And then the adventure really starts in earnest. And, uh, you know, we related to Frank on that level of, wow, getting a glimpse of the future through the optimist and either not being invited back or actively being kicked out of Tomorrowland. But on this level, we can absolutely, I feel, relate to Casey as someone who is out there openly stating I'm a dedicated optimist and searching for something and maybe not having the tools yet 
to attain it. So there is a relatability there. And it's these different parts of a personality embodied in Frank and embodied in Casey. And these first two introductory chunks really give both how they are so similar and the ways in which they're different, the ways in which they're on different parts of their journey. The first thing we see for Casey's turn at bat is a home video flashback where Casey is a little girl on her dad's shoulder and you you can't see it all perfectly, but he is wearing the red NASA cap that uh, Casey will claim for herself when she grows up, but she's pointing out stars. She's saying she wants to go out there. She wants to be an astronaut. And this is the one scene in the finished version of the movie where we actually glimpse famed actress, Judy Greer, uh, who plays Jenny Newton, Casey's mother. And uh, I counted, she only appears in, in, if I'm being generous, 34 frames of this movie. So she was indeed, unfortunately, left much on the cutting room floor. And the most interesting part is the versions of her that are left on the cutting room floor aren't compatible with each other. They are absolutely alternate versions. It's Schrodinger's mom, really, because sometimes she's implied to be dead in the modern day of the movie. And, you know, in the original iteration uh, that introduced us to the family in a really kind of Spielbergian Amblin. Oh my gosh, there's so many kids here. Oh, oh, my dad's brother's here and all his kids are here and they're screaming and yelling and the baby's crying and everything's going on. Mom is definitely there. Mom is, you know, hanging out. She's a member of the family and her only real role in the finished movie is in- interestingly pessimistic one because all <laughs> she seems to do when she's the one behind the camera recording this handheld video is, you know, optimistic little girl. Oh, she's memorized so many names of stars. I want to go up there. And mom just says, well, what if you go out there and there's nothing? And that's that's an interesting parenting tactic, I think. You know, she uh, she she's keeping it real. She's making sure that 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 Casey's not just an optimist, that she's got uh, some kind of reasons for her optimism. But of course, the real reason is a dramatic one, which is we want to tee up little Casey to be able to say, what if there's everything? which is such a syrupy, sensationally uh, sentimental moment that George Clooney again has to interrupt and say, oh boy, are you going to give him your whole childhood flashback? And in one version that at least exists in the screenplay, she did because after that sort of handheld flashback, a little, it's described in the script as a computer cursor comes in and pauses the video and then it pulls back and we see that they've been watching this on YouTube. And then they go to another video in their account where Casey is building a volcano. Now this one is on the Blu-ray in the deleted scenes, Casey versus the volcano. And uh, she, as a little girl has created rather than a volcano, like every other kid in her class, she made a volcano putter router, a a volcano extinguisher. I guess it was decided to be extraneous that we had two childhood flashbacks of Casey. So they decided just on the astronaut astronomy themed one. And it's, it's a fun, it's a fun sequence on the deleted scene. I'm glad they made it available for us to see because there are certainly are deleted scenes that have not been made available for us to see, or at least deleted little sections of scenes. Uh, The thing I particularly like about the volcano one is that while redundant, it does give you a bit of foreshadowing of Casey dismantling all of the cranes that will be in turn dismantling the launch pad. So she's, she's not inventing, she is inventing something new in the science fair competition, but what she's doing is, is not something to create a vast new tomorrow. It's something to stop something that's destroying something else. And so it it probably is redundant to the level that we're going to see her do that in literally the next scene. We're going to cut from that to Casey at Cape Canaveral. It's interesting how both childhood characters sort of had this, had this difficulty in presenting their family and their relationship, right? You've got this huge segment with young Frank and his father 
uh, we had a much longer version of that in the deleted scenes. You sort of have this same struggle with Casey and her mother and that whole family introduction. It's very clear that Brad Bird wanted to set up this sort of duality between the two characters of this sort of family struggle, but in two different directions, right? Totally. And I think that it's just fascinating that most of that most of that family struggle ended up on the cutting room floor. Right. And I know that some of it from our talks with the creative team, some of that decision making was specifically involved with remodulating the attitude of Casey's character. Because, you know, you can't change the fact that Casey is going to be arrested imminently. Like she is going to be uh, a teen in struggle. She is going to be an, uh, an at-risk youth. And the original version, both scripted and shot of her, was a lot more grim. And it was a more pessimistic optimism, if you want to say. The idea of reshooting some of those family scenes, both to focus on Casey, but to also give her a new, more positive attitude. And by doing that, uh, even if I really kind of dig the chaotic Amblin style, big family, Casey's kind of lost in the in the chaos, I really enjoy this parallel that emerges where Casey and Frank as kids both kind of had to pull more weight as kids than kids should need to, right? Like, you know, there's the neglectful father on Frank's part who just does not get what he's about. And so Frank is totally off uh, doing his own thing. And in his own deleted scenes discussed in the last episode, created a automaton to do the harvesting for the farm. So he's like, he's really contributing. And in this new reimagined version of Casey, you know, rather than her father giving her a pep talk about the two wolves, you know, metaphor in this new version, she is the one trying to bolster her father. And so she's just taken on a heap of responsibility. So storytelling wise, that aspect I do like, because since she is the main character, putting her more in the driver's seat of that particular relationship with her dad, I think was a good decision. Yeah, I'm personally bummed that the YouTube reference didn't make it because that would have instantly dated the movie. No, no, I'm glad they didn't put it in there because that would have instantly dated the movie. And it's it's interesting because in the script, it does read like a lot of this, you know, interruption, jumping back and forth, freeze framing, zooming in, zooming out of the intro was was really an attempt to be fresh and new and modern. And not a lot of it ended up in. And I think it will actually get them further to their goal by not including it as people rediscover it in years past. There'll be less to jump out at them as dated. On the flip side, a YouTube reference would have made a fun comment towards the ARG game, which highly involved YouTube. So I would have liked that element, but yeah. It would have been an interesting framing thing. And I'd be curious just to see visually how they decided to achieve that. But, you know, it, it does continue to strain the believability of what they eventually reveal that framing device to represent. And so, yeah, <laughs> you know, if, if you're trying to tie all that in uh, a more deft hand is probably uh, a better way to go with that. She was just holding a laptop at the portal that somehow had internet connection just, to the real world. She was world. just holding, yeah, she was holding it up to the face of these kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, those kids, I assume could just access YouTube in their brain. So so as Frank encourages Casey to hurry it along, not too much time for a flashback, even though, you know, he got a full 15 minutes for his flashback and she has gotten not nearly that at this point. So we smash cut to modern day and talking a little bit about the soundtrack here, we're getting our first needle drop. Okay, so G Kino has reigned supreme. Obviously we've had some source music with, you know, it's a small world, great big beautiful tomorrow. But this is uh, this is a song called I Got Mine by the Black Keys. It's from their 2009 album Attack and Release. It was also released as a single, so it was a big song. He performed it live on Letterman. Everyone remembers it. And it got to be number 23 on Rolling Stone's list of the 100 best songs of 2008. So this is pretty big stuff. Hasten, do you remember this song at all before you watch this section of the movie for a reminder? No. Okay, good. So we, we're, we're, here's what we're going to do. I want to go through some of the lyrics. We're not going to go through all of them. But I think, you know, there are no accidents. Uh, Brad Bird is a very meticulous director. And I want to go through here and just see, okay, if we're going to give this song more meaning 
than it actually has. Because in truth, it was probably chosen for its oral qualities, the tone. Oh, she's a rebellious youth. Oh, look at that. She's clad in black and driving a motorcycle around. But if we did want to look at the lyrics, let's see what we've got here. It starts off with, I was a moving man in my younger days, but I've grown out of my rambling ways. So this is about some kind of person that used to burn the candle at both ends, but they're like, I'm past that point now. So here's what I'm thinking. This is Frank. This is the framing device introducing itself into the non-diegetic music of this transition. And basically like he's saying, look kid, I had my motorcycle days too, except his motorcycle days, I'm gonna say are a lot cooler because his motorcycle was a jetpack. But when he says, I left that road so far behind and now I know I got mine, I got mine. Oh baby, I got mine. What, what, what does I got mine mean in Tomorrowland terms? He both got this amazing experience as a child and a, and a teenager that literally nobody else got. He couldn't let it go. So he got, he got his and he's grown out of it, but he hasn't fully yet accepted that. And I think that that's kind of the, that's this sort of framing device coming forward and saying, we know Frank had his moment to shine. And he got it, and he got it pretty good, and he did these amazing things in Tomorrowland. But it wasn't everything that he wanted. No, and I think this repetition, I got mine, I got mine, I got mine, I think that's denial. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't actually think any of this is any of it, but I'd say, if what if it was? This is more of a what-if question. What if this was the most important possible lyrics they could have chosen? And I'm going to say, Frank hiding away in his house. Well, obviously, at this point in the movie, we don't know that yet, but we're looking back through the prism of time. I think it's him trying to convince himself that, look, yeah, 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 I had all that, but this is better. Like, what I have now, you know, this is enough for me. Me being in my house tinkering, and I mean, let's not lie, he's been prolific. He's been inventing a lot of stuff. He's trying to say that's enough for him and that he knows better. But in truth, he doesn't because... This story is about two people who both need each other. Casey needs Frank, and Frank needs Casey. And as this song is playing, what are we seeing here? We are seeing a wall, a motorcycle rumbling past, and what is painted on that wall? A nuclear explosion. There's a bit of a peculiar and interesting motif of that nuclear explosion sort of mushroom cloud image throughout the movie. And this is the first time we're seeing it. Unlike the song we just analyzed with absolutely no dramatic basis behind it, this one is something we know is intentional because there is no wall right there that would be able to have a explosion painted on it. It was a bay of windows that they built a false wall on top of just for the purposes of painting on that that iconic image of a mushroom cloud explosion, you know, kind of announcing the nuclear age, right? And I'm going to say that this brings us right into one of our recurring segments. Hasten, welcome to your first installment of Location Station. The hover rail will be arriving in one minute. And we're going to start off by talking about New Smyrna Beach, Florida. We all remember it. We remember all the locals being excited on that news report that I'm sure we've all watched. George Clooney's newest movie, Tomorrowland, starts filming in New Smyrna Beach today. It's got everybody in New Smyrna Beach talking. I think it's great. Put New Smyrna on the map, besides being the shark capital of the world. <laughs> now we're going to be movies. <laughs> yes, that's right. They filmed this shot at the corner of North Orange and Canal Street in New Smyrna Beach, everybody's favorite small Florida town. Now, Haste, did you watch this news report? I remember when it was shared back in 2013. I mean, we were at the hype of everything. We are on Canal Street, and you can see these are some of the spots right here. Space Race, where they're going to be shooting this movie. Look around. They're putting up some things to make it a little bit authentic, kind of back in time. That did not end up being the case, did it? We were in modern times. I think they were just trying to make it look like Cape Canaveral. <laughs> it's a lot of effort for a scene that ended up being she zooms by it on a motorcycle, right? They built this beautiful, they built this beautiful Space Race Cafe sign, which we were initially convinced was going to be a larger part of this plot. Oh, we we got the domain name, spaceracecafe.com. I mean, I think we've let it lapse in subsequent years. So anyone who wants to go snag that up, you're more than welcome to. But that is something that's actually called out directly in the screenplay. And so I think it was written in as sort of just a scene setting, thematic, environmental detail of, oh, 
there was this cafe that was called the Space Race Cafe, but now there's a there's a banner over it that says Space for Lease, you know, in order to sort of the idea of paralleling what's going on with the launch platform and the space program in general. I would imagine that they did end up getting some B-roll of that, but I can't really personally imagine how you would cut that into the movie subtly unless it's in the deep background without it coming off as a really heavy-handed visual metaphor. Uh, I think it's fun to look at as a historical curiosity. To imagine that appearing in the movie itself, it, it would probably have been over the line of too literal of an idea. Now, Hasten, would you like to take a guess at what business currently occupies the physical location where the Space Race Cafe was installed all those years ago? It's a small lease space with a bunch of windows on the side. Probably like somebody's like small office or something. You're darn right, buddy. That location on Canal Street and in the intersection of North Orange is now home to the new Smyrna Beach Condo Queen. It looks like she's got a Condo Queen mobile covered in polka dots, bright pink and yellow. Incredible. I, I hope that she really appreciates the history of the retail space that she's now uh, occupying. And if she's not, the next time I visit, I'm going to make sure that that I give her a nice little plaque that she can put up in the corner to dedicate it as the former home of the Space Race Cafe, as seen in Disney's hit film Tomorrowland. Hey, why can't I revise history like everybody else? Wait, so one interesting thing is, is that this building, I'm looking at it right now, says J&J Building 2013. Hmm. So is the building only as old as when they shot there? I think there's a non-zero chance that they built that building for the movie. Just kidding. I don't actually know. Well, yeah, if they were building it for the movie, they wouldn't have put uh, windows where they didn't need them. Now, there's another famous American institution right down the street from this location that in that news report was very excited to have a Disney movie filming, a Dairy Queen. And according to those who were there, it was used in the background of a night shoot with a truck. And so I'm going to assume that it was one of many businesses that uh, were driven by Casey and her father after he picks her up. And I couldn't make out a Dairy Queen sign in the movie at any point. So I'm going to guess either they decided not to feature it, didn't care if they featured it, or didn't get the clearance to feature it. So Dairy Queen, unfortunately, does not make it onto our list of approved Tomorrowland fan <laughs> dessert establishments. <laughs> We've been talking about one shot <laughs> in a sequence with many shots. And as it continues, I'm personally drawn to the parallels of how Casey is introduced with how the character of Sam Flynn is introduced in 2010's Tron Legacy, another movie that you and I both share a great love for. There are a lot of parallels between Casey and Sam, and quite frankly, between these two movies. Absolutely. You have not only this sort of like slightly defiant, but optimistic, you know, character. You have obviously both of them, you know, and their their motorcycle prowess, which is an important part of the film. The, you know, this this relationship struggle with their father. So definitely a lot of parallels there between the two between the two fathers and the two characters. They're both part of a much larger organization that the children have a vested interest in living up to their expectations, right? So Sam is not happy with where NCOM's at, and Casey wants NASA to be this pinnacle of optimistic exploration and experimentation. And so I guess both of them are absent any vision of how to actively reform that in a constructive way. They've got these things that are that are blocking them, and they're only recourse that they can see is to take down the system that's holding back the progress. That leaves a big empty question mark, which is evocative of both of their characters being at the beginning of their journeys rather than the end. They're so frustrated that all they can do is, is try and tear something down with no real thought of, of what to replace it with. Casey's method of doing that is, of course, to drive her motorcycle up to the up to the gate outside Cape Canaveral, and she takes out this little fold-out drone helicopter, and, and she's got a busted old iPhone, the remote control that allows her to land it on top of this guard shack. And, and this is pretty impressive technology to me, that she is able to intercept the CCTV camera feed and replace it with either like a still image or a loop of some kind so that she will not be seen jumping over the gate. Now, little does Casey know that this extremely inventive and creative 
method of disabling the camera is completely unnecessary because what is this security guard doing? I remember he's sitting there like playing playing a game on a I think it was a PSP if I recall correctly. You are correct. It was a white PSP and I'm adding to that ever-growing list of Tomorrowland mysteries. Nobody knows who played that security guard. He only appears in one shot, but he is deeply invested in whatever video game that he is playing. The scene description for him in the script is a chubby rent-a-cop. Now, this guy was not chubby, but it does seem he was a rent-a-cop who was not very invested in the security of this launch base. And I'm going to be honest with you, if I was in charge of a launch gantry that's being disassembled, I might be allowing myself a little bit of free time as well. He is eating a hoagie. The script specifically says he's eating a hoagie. And in the left of the frame, you see a partially eaten hoagie. Now, this is where my ability to relate to the cop ends, because that hoagie would not be left uneaten if it was me. I would not be able to start playing the game until the hoagie was finished. Uh, And it specifically says that he's playing an apocalyptic game on his iPad. Okay, so it's not an iPad, but on his PlayStation portable device. He's playing an apocalyptic game. Now, I haven't I haven't dived into the pre-2015 catalog of the PSP, so I don't know what game he's playing. But if I'm going to make an in-universe guess, I think he's playing a very lowly rated on Metacritic adaptation of the Toxicosmos franchise. You have a lot of these little references that they were unable to make it in of this idea that the populace, thanks to the monitor, you know, as we discover in later scenes, is just addicted to this post-apocalyptic sort of nature, right? You know, maybe this would have been a great idea to include a shot of him playing something like Fallout, sort of this like, oh, there's this through line. Uh, and we see some of it in the film, you know, we have the Toxicosmos 3 movie poster and stuff like that. But it's interesting when you look at these little things, it's like you have the same sort of imagery of the, you know, of the nuclear threat, and society is kind of addicted to it. There are more that actually do make it into the movie in subtle ways, and we'll continue to point those out. But that is one of those motifs. It's associated with that nuclear explosion mushroom cloud image, but it also exists where that where that little symbol doesn't show up. So it really is kind of throughout the normal world. You know, it, we're all kind of affected by these druthers uh, that are being controlled by someone we later find out but let's not let's not get too far ahead of ourselves there casey is uh pretty good at hopping over fences uh i'm i don't know if that's a stunt double or not but it's a it's a really skilled climb over a chain link fence and she lands and rips off her helmet and reveals oh it's a girl her golden hair cascades down i think that this reveal would have been a little bit more compelling in the original uh, linear version of the film, because we've we've seen Casey at this point. This isn't actually a reveal anymore. There's probably no one watching the movie that doesn't know that that's Casey. Now, right after she rips off her helmet, here's the important part. She puts on that red NASA cap. Now, this is Casey's totem. It's It's kind of a representation of her stubborn dedication to these ideals that she holds and she inherited Uh, from her father. It's an imbued object in the traditional sense, and you can track it as a marker of her character journey throughout the movie. And I think it works really well in the context of the movie as an imbued object, as a metaphorical representation of her journey. But we can't mention that without also commenting on how the meaning of red hats has changed in our world in the years since Tomorrowland was released. As always with Tomorrowland, right? You have this interesting thing of this film came out kind of at this weird precipice, which was two years before we saw society really take a turn sort of into that a hundred percent diving into that weird post-apocalyptic mindset. And then, you know, five years before one could arguably say an actual post-apocalyptic event. So it's very interesting to me to look at like some of these symbols that, you know, this idea that, oh, you know, this totem was really important to her, how that was backed in on itself through the whole Trump red hat thing. But still very, very interesting. There are a lot of ways in which Tomorrowland can be looked back on as a very prescient movie. You know, you've got this alternate reality and we suddenly find ourselves living in a world where there are an alarmingly large number of people openly willing to live in an alternate reality with uh, a level of conspiracy theory engagement that I never could have anticipated in my lifetime and has been quite eye-opening for me. 
but this is one of those ways that I feel like culturally the movie was prescient or accidentally so in a way that is somewhat unfortunate for fans of the movie who want to wear that hat and suddenly find yourself a little bit hesitant to wear any hat that's red. Well, you just need to age it down so it looks old and jagged like the movie, and then you're probably fine. That doesn't help anybody who's seeing you from behind, but I totally get your point, and I think I can imagine a point of the future where that's not a problem at all. But I do think that, you know, as something that she ends up having to let go of in the same way that she let go of her assumptions at the end of the movie, it's not the worst unintended parallel that you could have. It, it ends up in the right place, I think, but we'll we'll go much deeper into that when we reach the end of the movie on here. But what is she doing now? Casey is attempting to take down these cranes. And for someone who is seeing the movie for the first time, it can be a little interesting to try and figure out what she's doing. I mean, literally, you know, if we read the screenplay, we can see that she's uh, attempting to fry the batteries with her little handheld battery frying device that she's made. Uh, but in something I'm not sure was ever actually filmed, apparently she had multiple devices in that backpack. And one of them was a portable EMP that she was using to fry, you know, all of the electronic equipment, not just in the in the cranes, but in everything around it. So it would seem that her destruction originally had something of a larger radius than it did in the movie. Uh, but I, I really like this scene. You are trusted to put together what you're seeing. You know, it's it's not just literally telling you what's going on. You kind of have to observe and say, oh man, she's up to something. And it, it becomes, it crystallizes as you continue. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that as you discover it, you know, being of a generation you really sort of connect with it as a, as sort of an early millennial, right? Like I don't associate NASA with like amazing space progress and doing all these things. I associate it with the turn down of the shuttle system right. that we saw in our lifetime. I associate it with, you know, massive government bureaucracy. It felt appropriate because it was this sort of anger of like, no, no, this is supposed to be the place where science comes from and where like space exploration comes from why are we tearing it down why is it why is it going away why can't we reuse any of these things that we paid millions of dollars for i mean spoiler alert that exact launch pad would be the launch site of like falcon heavy a few years later which is amazing in its own you know spacex and everything else but at the time, it definitely felt like that sort of like it really connected with me in this level of like, uh, forget NASA. It's not it's not what it was. It's not what it's trying to do. So I had, a, I had a pretty strong, deep emotional connection with that particular scene. Yeah. And it's interesting because that very specific use of NASA and Cape Canaveral does seem to be tied to the energies that were fueling Brad Bird and making the movie, right? Like he has very strong feelings himself about the end of the space program. And that's one way in which I've never really related to him or the specific emphasis of the movie. Like I'm not a huge space program guy. Like I think NASA is great and everything else, but you know, going to space is not top on my list of priorities for this planet or the people who live on it. But you know, I always just took it as a metaphorical representation, like so many other things in the movie, like this is the kind of mascot of science and the scientific method and how science can benefit humanity. And, and I think as a pop culture example, you kind of can't get a better one than that. And so that's why I kind of justified its use in the movie. But I know for a lot of people, it, no, it actually is the specific thing about NASA and spaceflight and all of that as representing this end of an era. And, you know, I, I always think of these things in terms of death and rebirth, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to have a new endeavor that matches the ambition of that but you know i was never personally to the surprise of many who know me who think i'm a you know a big sci-fi guy and i'm not necessarily not a big sci-fi guy but i've never personally had a huge connection to the space program itself and so these things have always been more oh, oh i can see how other people would have a real personal connection to this imagery but for me the emphasis has been a lot more on, okay, what is driving this character? And this is their obsession, so I'm going along this journey with them. But, you know, it would not be my personal first choice to break into a platform to sabotage a bunch of cranes with a homemade overdrive device of some kind. Now, if you read the screenplay, they give a pretty, you know, they, it was never filmed. We never saw it in the deleted scenes or whatever else. But Casey explains to Nate, she specifically tells him in this screenplay that, you know, well, if something doesn't work, the launch pad 
demolition equipment, for example, it becomes too much trouble to tear the platform down. They'll stop to save money. Then it's just a matter of time before someone invents something cool to launch from it. I mean, there's research on diametric drives that NASA totally ignored because they said it was theoretically impossible, but dot, dot, dot. I love this explanation, and I'm really sad that this didn't make it into the film because, again, it would have been a great parallel of SpaceX going back to use a majority of that equipment to actually launch rockets from it. But in addition, it was it was great to hear the motivation and to hear the sort of like, it wasn't just this act of destruction because she was mad. It was like there was actual, there was actually strong thinking going on here of if someone keeps messing with the equipment, we're not going to, we're not going to tear it down. It's a little bit of a child naive thing, but it also, you know, it also makes a lot of sense. I do think that the, the line of dialogue itself is a little bit long in the tooth, but no, I totally agree that having something in there that hangs a lantern on the kind of double thinking that this character is having to do uh, to express herself would have answered a lot of audience questions and a lot of audience confusion. And so even if it was a truncated version of this, I agree, it would have been great to have that in there just to put that in her mouth and say, this is, this is why I'm doing this specifically. And it's just really interesting that that would be lost when they bent over backwards to have the first few minutes of the movie be so explanatory and to be so clear about what the stakes are. This is also too, when we're introduced to later Athena for the first time with that mysterious figure watching. That's right. Casey has her sort of last look. She's she's running off. She's done her business. She's getting out of there. This is one of those moments where the music comes back in. You know, we've had the source track that we talked about. Now Giacchino's music is coming back in. She's first looking at the gantry and she continues to look up at the stars. And I'm honestly not sure if those few notes that we're hearing it seems that they're hinting at the Tomorrowland theme. Possibly they're hinting at the Athena theme. But uh, either way, it's appropriate because that's eventually going to be Casey's destiny. And we are now, as you said, pulling back past the chain link fence and we've got Athena sitting in a car. Now, that car is a 1992 Volkswagen Cabriolet. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the car used in the movie is, as far as I can tell, still for sale in Palm Beach, Florida, and it's only got 134,000 miles on it. So someone's going to get a sweet deal and a sweet piece of Tomorrowland history. As much as I would love to have it parked out front of our museum of the future, uh, I don't know that that's currently in the cards for us or a priority, quite frankly. That whole thing is like, it's a great bit, right? Of this young, of this robot that's this young little girl driving a car. And I don't think that anyone, I don't think that people appreciate how great that bit is because it's a, it's a fantastic sort of thing. No, and it definitely becomes more obvious later. This is just our first little instinct yeah. of it. And certainly in the script, she was not described as being in a car here. She was just sort of in the shadows uh, by the fence. But I love that little, the framing of that shot is great. And if you know what's going on, it becomes even funnier. But the first time you see it, it's just sort of a mysterious, what's going on here? That looks like a kid, but she's not really fully lit. So I don't know. Because, you know, they're still really trying to hold on to that mystery of the idea that Athena is not human and that, you know, that she will fully be revealed as not aging later. But, you know, I personally don't know that the desire to preserve that mystery was worth the effects that it ended up having on the marketing campaign, because I think that beat in particular is what made them really uh, try to withhold Athena from the marketing. And I think that she would have been a really great magic bullet for the marketing campaign. I think that if you were able to sort of reframe it around her recruitment efforts, you could have done some really interesting things, both in traditional marketing and in sort of, you know, ambitious viral marketing. Yeah, I think the exclusion of Athena in the total marketing piece did not make a lot of sense. But I also understand that they wanted to bank on George Clooney. And the real problem is, is that I think the first commercial with the with the hidden pin thing worked really well for them. And they're like, we're just going to continue to run with this all the way up to the movie release. Right. And it didn't end up paying off for them. So, hey, yeah. hindsight is always twenty twenty. They were doing their best. I don't want to come down on them too harshly. But uh, I really and I honestly think that was not the marketing department's decision. I think that was a Brad Bird decision. Now, from the gantry, we cut to the Newton home. And speaking of the Tomorrowland Times Museum of the Future, if I had my druthers, this house would be the future home of our museum of interesting objects from this movie. Uh, it's in Alamante Springs, Florida. 
And uh, it's a real house. She sneaks in and she's caught by her little brother, Nate Newton, who is played by brilliant character actor Pierce Gagnon, who you may remember as the devil child in Looper, Ryan Johnson's masterpiece. This kid is a fantastic actor. And his couple of scenes in the movie are really great. Both versions of it, because this bedroom scene was reshot when they were trying to lighten up Casey's character a little bit. She's a bit more antagonistic towards him in the original version, but both versions of the scene roughly convey the same information. And the real aspect of Casey's character that we get out of this scene is when she says, I know how things work. She's innately able to break things down, assess how they work, what they do. I also think that that shows that she's still a far cry from being in a position to actually create something. And this is a way in which she's distinct from young Frank. Frank is all boundless imagination. Frank is all creation. He's making stuff that doesn't have any purpose. And she is much more in her head about breaking down systems and how they work and how they don't work and what can I do. They're both alike in so many ways, but their emphasis becomes so different. And this is where we start to see that kind of difference. Yeah. And a great parallel to later on in the film when, you know, she's the one who figures out that we've got to shut it down. Right. Like that same sort of mindset of, Oh, I figured out what the monitor is doing, how that all interconnects. Right. You really see this from the start of Frank is this amazing boundless creator. She's the, you know, she's the sort of like systems engineer. She understands how everything is interlinked and interconnected, right? We even see that in the scene with her father when he's fixing whatever thing that he's working on. She just knows, she can look at it and she just knows exactly the switches to flip. And, you know, I feel like, like for me, that connected a lot because that's kind of how I operate. Like I love looking at sort of overarching systems and how they interact, you know, especially, you know, like, operations and stuff like that so it really worked from that sort of angle of oh he's the creator and she's sort of not the destroyer but she understands what she needs to do in order to make progress and i think that's a great place to start two characters who are going to share a journey together because it's almost like they're two pieces of a puzzle and yet they're also going to have a lot to learn from each other and so starting them in these positions where we introduce them in a way that shows just how different they are even though they also seem somehow so specifically destined to come together. And that's a really tricky needle to thread. And I think that's why they had to iterate on this characterization so much because you're, they're trying to do a lot at once. And it's a really difficult thing to do both on the page and in performance. Because, you know, you can write something down and you can think that it's going to play. But until you see it acted out, you don't know how it's going to affect the tone of the movie. And especially in this opening act, you really need everything to be singing with each other. Another way that that connection manifests in the dialogue, Nate asks her just to confirm that she's not going to give up. And she says, never. And that's kind of the button on the end of the episode. I'm never going to give up. And that's literally the only piece of the Frank father flashback that we do get is him saying, I'm not giving up. And so they're definitely linked in that way and their dedication, their unnatural dedication. They're showing us how they're different from everybody else, but also how they're different from each other. A small little side note I'd like to make here. Casey comes back from her big mission and she takes off her hoodie and we see that she's wearing a John Lennon shirt. Now, Hasten, do you think there's any reason that she's wearing a John Lennon shirt in this movie other than the lyric, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one? I don't I don't think so, but maybe. Nope, I think that's about it. So from that button, we cut to the outside of the house. We see a close-up on this beautiful pin case with the Plus Ultra logo. Oh my gosh. I audibly squealed, by the way, in the theater the moment that we saw the logo. L literally no one else in the theater knew why we were making that sound or what was going on. The logo does not show up that many times in the movie, but uh, when it does, it's very exciting. And this was just such a, I mean, that's just a beautifully designed prop. She opens it up. There's nine slots for pins and there's only one left. So you immediately get this vision of all the years in between. Um, you know, they haven't fully revealed that it's Athena at this point, but, you know, you put two and two together, particularly if you're rewatching it for a second time. And they have these little visual clues scattered throughout that show this passage of time for her and that little sliver of the narrative, those 25 years that she wasn't in Tomorrowland, that's a huge open door where we, the audience were allowed to live. That is the gateway into what the optimist was the framing device for what the optimist was just these ongoing recruitment systems that were never shut down. 
or the people operating them never wanted to shut them down. Absolutely. I think if Nix knew about some of these aspects, clearly Nix is ignorant of Athena continuing to do it. But I think if we want to interpret the Wallace character from the Optimist game as also being an audio animatronic character, which I think you can pretty safely assume he was, uh, I would assume Nix was not aware that that guy was still out doing what he was. And if he was, he would have shut him down. So I think there are a lot of these things, but it was a worldwide organization filled with so many brilliant minds. You would think that that recruitment effort had undocumented arms that were going on in parallel. Uh, So she's taken a pretty darn big swing on Casey here. And the pressure of that just becomes immense, I would imagine, being the, the last hope of this plus ultra recruiter. So she slides out this new pin and she puts it in the dna scanner she takes out a little hair i just love silent scenes like this where you see a character performing an action and you're left to totally devise what the intention was here and it's just it's done so beautifully you know exactly what's going on you got the hair the thing and it's paired with it and it has an interesting effect as we proceed forward and as casey first comes into contact with this where it sort of puts us in an audience superior position where we know more than Casey does. When we see that hair plucked up and it's paired with the pin, we now know it's destined just for her. So we know what's coming when she tries to get her dad to touch it. We know what's coming, but this pin is different from the one that we've seen. Even if you're not a gigantic prop nerd like we are, you can tell that this one looks different than the one that was given to Frank. And so I think it's natural to assume that it's not going to perform the same function. So I think it's safe to assume that Casey is not going to hop on a plane, fly to California and go on into small world and have it scanned by the top of the Eiffel Tower. This thing is going to do something different. And in their selection of the designs that Clint Schultz, the graphic designer, did for these pins, I think it's really clever that they chose this particular design as the one for the 1984 pin versus the 1964 pin, because it's actually got the T breaching outside of the outer circle. And so it gives this idea of transportation, of pushing beyond. The other one was basically just a little, hey, you're allowed to go through. It was a permission card, you know, to get through this secret portal. We know immediately that this one is going to do something different. The 84 pin sort of represents this wider effort to bring people into Tomorrowland because we're taking the knowledge of Tomorrowland and we're putting it out into the world versus the 64 pin where it's like, no, no, you are invited to come inside. So everything's neatly contained within this circle. It works, it works pretty well as this sort of like, you know, visual narrative to how recruitment has changed. And that 1964 one also has an atom within the circle in addition to the letter T. And so it's, you know, it's a nice little thing of saying we have contained the atom, you know, the folly of thinking that you have contained, you have mastered the natural world of the atom. So as Athena is doing this, the glow from the DNA scanner illuminates her face and the music swells into a big sting And this is the moment that the audience is meant to know, oh, my goodness, that is the little girl from the beginning of the movie. She hasn't aged. Something is not right. Something much bigger movements of fate are happening here. That moment of revelation smash cuts to inside the house the next morning. And this is the bit where we previously talked about Casey sort of taking the parenting role in this relationship where dad's down on his luck. He's about to lose his job. And he's dismantling, theoretically, something that he helped create. And she is now the one who tells him the two wolves metaphor. And I do know that at the time this movie came out, there was some criticism at the use of this, because I think several other movies at the time and television shows had also invoked the two wolves in their story. But I think the way that it harmonizes with this story makes it a really appropriate inclusion, regardless of whatever else was going on in the world at the time. And you know the most depressing thing about her dad, Eddie Newton? He never changed the default ringtone on his phone. Can you can you paint a more grim picture of a lack of imagination than that? I mean, the dude can't fix his little hobby, whatever the hell that thing is. It spins. Whatever it is, it spins. It has a motor. She she fixes the spinny bit. I mean, he wears bright t-shirts. And I think in the original... <laughs> production notes that they gave to the press it did mention that casey and her dad share a sense of fashion and i don't know that this really manifested in the movie but they particularly called out that they wear bright colorful socks and we certainly see casey's socks in the movie but we never see eddie's socks so hey that list of tomorrowland mysteries gets a little bit longer we're putting eddie's socks on there what do they look like also you know fun socks that's a very 2013 (laughs) 
2014-2015 thing. Oh, and as they're talking, what do we hear? Very distant in the background. It's our second piece of source music. And this one is called Sadie by Hound Dog Taylor, everyone's favorite Chicago blues man from his album Natural Boogie. The other thing going on in this scene, oh my gosh, do I know a motif if I see one? What is Nate doing but playing a PSP? Nate is playing a PSP. Why would there be Sony product placement in a Disney film? I don't know. But what I would like to think is that what he's playing on there is the same multiplayer game that the security guard is playing in the shack. And they're actually friends. They met through dad's work. And they have a charming adventures together off on the side. And I think it would have made a charming Disney XD animated series. These guys are going to get into some real <laughs> shit. <laughs> Let's be honest. It's a prop It's a prop device that best says I'm playing a video game uh, while sitting in a location that's not next to a TV. If Tomorrowland was made today, it would have been a Nintendo Switch. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so we move straight on from Casey's motivational two wolves speech into the sequence which the soundtrack so aptly calls Casey versus Zeitgeist. This is the montage of her teachers. It's a series of smash cuts that I think is pretty clever. It assembles a sort of continuous thought between the different teachers. They all kind of cascade into each other. I love that there's a little mention of Ray Bradbury, which, you know, was a member of the Plus Ultra Society that we really ran with in our Stop Plus Ultra game a lot more than I'm sure it was originally intended. Underneath this, you know, it's got kind of this marching music behind it that that pushes it forward. But underneath it, you can actually hear a little bit of Nix's theme. And in this way, I think they're almost using Nix's theme as the effect the monitor is having on the populace and sort of the unconscious ways that the viral apocalyptic thinking is functioning. And so, yeah, I think if they did end up doing that close up on that security guard, playing an apocalyptic video game, you probably would have heard some variation of Nick's theme under that because that's how it's being used in the rest of the movie is just what corners are being touched by this sort of trans-dimensional broadcast that's happening. This is a big moment for Casey where, you know, she raises her hand. No one's calling on her. No one's calling on her. Every class, every teacher's ignoring her. She's isolated. She's unanswered. But it's finally the English teacher who calls on her and she says, I get that things are bad, but what are we going to do to fix it? She poses this question. And, you know, this is perfectly in line with the kind of freshman mentality that we're getting from her in terms of, look, I can mimic things. I can break them down. I can I can replicate them. I can understand how they work. But the next step is still a big question mark. And so she literally throws a big question mark up here. She doesn't have an answer. None of the adults around her have an answer either. And there was actually a fourth teacher that was written to the script. No idea if it was filmed and cut out or if it wasn't filmed. But it was an econ class. And the econ teacher brings up global economic collapse and says, see, kids, what happened is that your parents were just plain stupid with their money. And now you get to pay the price. How did it happen? And then, of course, it throws to like environmental entropy or something to that effect. That was a cute one. And after she, you know, goes through the motions of school, which as anyone who has the Blu-ray or streams it online can see in the deleted scenes section, she originally had a scene with the guidance counselor that, um, you know, tried to get her back in line. But this was lost because she really tonally came off as more of the troubled youth in this scene. And it didn't quite jive anymore with the concept of Casey as the unflappable optimist that she is in the final version of the movie. And so we smash instead right back to the launch pad. She's doing her thing again, stubbornly persisting with this crazy multi-layered plan. But something different happens this time. From the POV of the drone, it's grabbed by a security guard. And I would like to point out that it's a different security guard. And I'm going to go ahead and assume that's because the last one was fired for playing his PSP so much that he missed this sabotaging teen sneaking into Cape Canaveral. That's just my headcanon. Behind her, Casey is backlit by the red and blue flashing lights of an approaching cop car who squawks his alarm. And she turns around and there's this great match cut that happens when her back is to the camera and she raises her hands up in, you know, surrender. And then it smashes to her leaving the police holding cell in this big, you know, the door opens and the cop tells Casey that she's made bail and she can pick up her motorcycle from impound and her effects are over there. Now, Hasten, would you like to guess the name of the credited role for this bit player with one cop. line of dialogue? 
for the first cop, not the one behind the desk, but the one who tells her she made bail. I don't know, bail cop? This man is called the beefy cop. <laughs> and and he was played by Pierce Vizier. And I'm sure that this man is never been more proud of any credit on his IMDb than beefy cop in Tomorrowland. Everyone remembers beefy cop. Everyone loves beefy cop. Then she goes over to jail desk jockey. And this guy is played by the golden voiced Gary Chalk. That's right. His name is Gary Chalk, but his voice isn't chalky. It's silky smooth. And I'm pretty sure they must have cast him for his voice because they had to know that this scene was going to make it into the teaser. She's getting out of jail. He's reading off her items. And, you know, she's glancing around and she sees like a apocalyptic weather report. There's no music in this scene, but I think if there was when she's looking at that apocalyptic weather report, we probably would have heard that Nick's theme sneak in underneath it. Then she looks from the TV completely around behind her, and there's the biggest man spread you've ever seen happening, where this jail punk, which is what he's called both in the script and in the credits, jail punk, played by Dagan Nish, and he's taking up an entire bench, and he's just looking at her, staring her straight down, wearing a pork pie with long hair streaming down. I'm going to say he looks like a sexy Babadook, or that female villain from Dr. Sleep. Either way, in all seriousness, this guy is great in the movie. And I think if I had to choose like one bit player that just has like a couple of lines, this one is my favorite. And I think if the movie was a huge success and the toy line was a huge success, I totally imagine jail punk getting an action figure in like the fourth and final wave of figures before it peters off. Like this is, this guy is a wave four character, but his, he's just, he's, pitch perfect he knows exactly the role that he's playing in the movie and he does it beautifully i always get a big laugh from all of his reactions so the jail desk jockey reads out casey's effects let's go through this stuff here let's let's read into what this says about her character based on what she's got on her person at the time she's got a leather money clip which i'm gonna say is kind of weird i think that means she's an old soul she's got 47 dollars 32 cents She's got a Florida state driver's license, which reveals that her middle name is Anne, and she has the initials C-A-N or can, which means she has a can-do attitude, I think. Her birthday is listed as April 2nd, 1997, which, if you want to do the math, would make her 17 if the movie takes place in 2014, or 18 if the movie takes place in 2015. Her address is listed as 2321 Hibiscus Street, Titusville, Florida. 32780. Is this a real address? It is not a real address because people who do props for movies know better than that. And you really shouldn't be putting real addresses out there if you don't intend people to go to them. And so they did their due diligence. It is not a real address. But if you look up Titusville, Florida, you'll see that if this is intended to be the address of the Newton home and not some previous home that they had, that means Eddie has a nice, brisk 25-minute morning commute to Cape Canaveral every day. So what's interesting is when you look at when you look at Titusville, there's a whole somebody did their research because there's a whole string of streets that have there's a whole block area that has flower names. So I, I believe there is a Hibiscus Avenue, but not a Hibiscus Street. So they I really appreciate them putting in that little extra effort or else you and I would have been running down there trying to see what's going on. So, of course, she has her baseball cap in the script. She objects to him mischaracterizing her NASA cap as a baseball cap. So script Casey is a little bit nerdier and pedantic than the one in the movie. Uh, she's got the pin, which she does not recognize and a pack of Beeman's gum. Beeman's gum is, you know, a historical brand, a legacy brand of gum, Pepsin gum that's become associated with, you know, fighter pilots and the right stuff. And of course my personal favorite, the rocketeer. Great reference here. Great, great nod. Now the desk jockey cop also says, I don't know what this is to her last item. I think it's just a little baggie of the bracelet she must have had on her at the time. If it's not that, I have no idea what it is. And everyone should write in and tell us what they think is in that last effect of Casey's and what mysteries it reveals about her character. Now, the things that aren't listed, her helmet, jacket, and gloves, they must be with her motorcycle at the impound, which we know she does not get back. Her dad did not spring the bill for that one because later we see her riding on a bicycle. Now, she's confused. This isn't her pin. She touches it. And she gets her first glimpse of that wheat field and that shining city beyond. The first thing I noticed when we saw this is that the sound effect on her touching the pin is completely different from the one in the trailer. It was a lot 
more pronounced. And I actually do like the more subtle, just sort of wispy wind, sort of shiny sound that they put into the movie. I think it's more appropriate to draw your eye to what's happening rather than some big bombastic sound effect. So Casey decides to pull out a pack of the aforementioned Beemons and take out the wrapper and use it to pick up the pin. She's got to do something with the gum. So she pops in her mouth and she spins to see her father waiting in the doorway to pick her up. And he's given a look that could kill. He is very disappointed in his daughter. So when Casey's in the car and she's being driven home, she's trying to convince him to touch this pin. And he eventually does no effect. The audience knew that was going to happen, but it's still really disappointing for her. And she says, what's going on? And decides to take a risk and touch it again. And these transitional moments, both in the gel cell and in the truck, are so subtly and wonderfully done by ILM. It's it's really invisible work that they're doing here, because you might think it's just a match cut, but they actually are modifying the couple of frames before and after the cut to make them match a little bit more uncannily. I'm imagining that's involving a lot of morphing and repositioning of certain elements you know you'll see things that don't match up but they're really making sure that her face and her position her body position matches and uh, as she moves in on the pin they kind of up the exposure on the image she brightens up as she's touching it to sort of ease the transition into the bright golden wheat field which we didn't mention before, but that golden wheat field was a real wheat field. It was not a digital effect or an artificial wheat field. It was located in Canada at the Blue Ridge Hutterite colony. Interestingly enough, the Hutterites are a religious group like the Amish. So I say we take a road trip up to Canada in wheat season, and hopefully they'll have a nice wheat field we can frolic through and share our love of all things technological. No, I mean, I think the wheat field imagery is very interesting. This sort of like city off in the distance. I really like the whole duality of the journey to get there. Like it didn't just all have to be this sort of like stark futurism. It allowed that sort of natural tease moment, which I think is why it made a great teaser trailer moment. So Casey freaks out when she touches the pin again in the truck and she's just kind of floating uh, above that wheat field. And dad just grabs the pin out of her hand and puts it in his pocket. In the screenplay, Dad goes on to tell her, you were right. Once the platform's gone, so am I. And I got to be honest with you. I'm looking out into the distance and I'm seeing nothing. So Dad's really depressed. Eddie doesn't have a lot of optimism left in his tank. I love the duality of she's just touched this pin. She sees this beautiful city off in the distance And he's telling her, yeah, once it's gone, I'm gone. I'm not seeing anything in the distance. Would have been fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, he's not seeing what she's seeing literally and metaphorically here because she's a lot more optimistic than he is. And so it it is a really nice little bit of dialogue there. And uh, Casey goes on to tell him, you know, it's going to be okay. You're just feeding the wrong wolf. She reinvokes the wolf here. And then dad says, well, kiddo. Sometimes he's the only one who's hungry. Oof, that's hard. You know he's not doing well when he pulls the rug out from the two wolves. I mean, come on, man. So Casey's not wasting any time. Right after this, we cut to her slinking next to her dad's bed, which does not contain a wife in this version (laughs) that appears in the movie. Uh, I do want to point out, though, that as he's sleeping, dad's shirt says River Heights Police Department. This makes me wonder, was dad a cop? I don't know. I don't know why he's wearing this, but I'm going to go ahead and take a leap and assume that it is not a reference to the very real River Heights in Utah, but rather a reference to the fictional city that was occupied by none other than Nancy Drew herself. We've got this scene where Casey's doing a little bit of sleuthing of her own. Why not drop in a little Nancy Drew reference? I also noted here that Dad has a lot of notebooks on his side table. When Casey does open the drawer, though, he's got one of those rolly eyeball toys. I had one of those as a kid. I think I got it from like a John's Incredible Pizza. It's one of my favorite toys as a kid. Look, it always is the right side up. It's always looking up. This eyeball is always looking up. But why has why has he put it in a drawer? Because he can't see. He said it before. I can't see what you're seeing. Dad's vision is limited. And that is the metaphor of why he put the eyeball in the drawer. <laughs> So Casey grabs the pin and, you know, she's kind of contorted in a way that her dad won't see her. And so she is underneath the wheat this time and she pops up. 
For someone who hit her head in the police station, she doesn't seem to be moving around with as much care. For someone who understands how things work, she doesn't clue into how this pin works as quickly as I would have hoped for her because she smashes right into a wall. Great bit, though. It's a great bit. It visual, it's so clever. It, there's something cartoony about it that I really love. And when you look at the behind-the-scenes photos of how they shot this, there was an actual pane of glass that they brought out into the wheat field, and they just when she's making her way around it and she finds the edge, they just digitally scrubbed out the seam and any kind of wayward reflections that would have been in there, which I think is just a great way to handle an effect like that. It almost seems like she's miming and she's just too good at it, but um, no, they actually had a big piece of glass. So Casey confidently decides to march forward into the wheat field and of course tumbles uh, down the stairs. And when she reaches the bottom, this is another deleted scene that showed up on the Blu-ray where her uncle is sleeping on the couch and he has to kind of sneak around because the pin fell underneath the couch. And as she's doing that, you know, the uncle fell asleep in front of the TV and the show being played on the TV is a real show called Doomsday Preppers. And the guy on the screen is a real guy named Big Al. And the particular clip they decided to use was one where he uh, repeatedly insists that I am not going to drink my own urine. But the real cool part about that deleted scene is that it introduces this idea of the broadcast of the pin itself that will recur later. When Casey walks by the TV, she notices that it goes staticky for a bit. And then she's like, what's going on? And she puts the pin purposefully up to the TV and the image is just complete digital noise. And I kind of love that little bit of foreshadowing there. And even though there was no good way to keep it in because of the uncle not really being in the movie anymore, it's an idea that I think is a fun one. And, you know, again, it plays to that whole love of the post-apocalyptic So Casey rolls up on her bike and she takes the pin out to try one last time just to make sure that she's headed in the right direction. She spots the city and rides off into the distance. And that ends our segment right as Casey is about to accept her pinvitation, the sequence which will comprise all of our next episode. I can't wait. I have a lot of thoughts and details about the pinvitation and I can't wait to discuss it next week by design the pinvitation is chock full of detail and so there's a lot to break down and um you know just so many ideas packed into so little time and one of the few glimpses we get of tomorrowland so there's going to be a lot to discuss and that's going to be a lot of fun before we go i did want to give a small update on the tomorrowland theme tracker now taking in mind that healthy disclaimer I put at the beginning, I believe that this segment that we discussed today contained the Tomorrowland theme three times, Athena's theme four times, the Plus Ultra theme a whopping zero times, and Nyx's theme one time, right at the beginning with the Nixie Tube countdown clock. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at the Tomorrow Time, or send us an email at press at TomorrowlandTimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at TomorrowlandTimes.com. If you'd like to record us an audio message, we'd love to hear any memories you might have of the first time that you saw Tomorrowland, and we might play it on a future episode. We want to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we accept our own pinvitation. We'll be joining you as always from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there is always a place where where dreamers dreamers can can stick together. together.